This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Good morning. Our first reading this morning is from Matthew 22, 23 to 33. That same day, the seducers who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring from him, for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Hear the word of the Lord. And our second lesson this morning comes from the Song of Songs, chapter 8, verses 6 to 7. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your holy word. May it be a lantern to our feet, a light to our paths, and strength to our lives. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please do uh, take a seat, and you will have found in your order of service uh, an outline of today's sermon. We're up to the second in our series on the myths of Sydney. As Naomi said earlier, last week we looked at the dream home. Uh, this week we look at the soulmate I want to begin by taking you back to ancient Greece and to a great dinner party that was uh, a somewhat inebriated sort of dinner party. The wine was certainly flowing. And the, Greek, the great Greek philosopher Plato was present and indeed wrote down what he uh, saw. It might have been a fiction, of course, but anyway, he's written down the proceedings of this dinner party at which there was a contest to see who could make the best speech on the subject of love. Does sound like a night down at the sheaf, doesn't it? 
Eventually, it was the turn of the great playwright, Aristophanes, and he told an incredible story. He said, once upon a time, human beings were, in fact, male and female. They had both sets of sexual organs, two faces, four hands and four legs. They used to move at speed all over the earth by making cartwheels, which they could do. And they were very powerful. In fact, they were so powerful that they caught the attention of the gods in heaven, in Olympus. So Zeus, the king of the gods, decided that he would take action. And he picked up one of his mighty thunderbolts. And with his thunderbolt, sending these thunderbolts down, he cut the human beings in two. And, said Aristophanes, it is this division of the human, from human beings from their original state that drives us to love. It's the search for our lost other half that will make us whole again. As, as Aristophanes says, or at least as Plato has him say, love is born in, into every human being. It calls back the halves of our original nature together. It tries to make one out of two and heal the wound of human nature. Each of us, then, is a matching half of a human whole, and each of us is always seeking the half that matches him or her. Now, of course, no one believes this myth to be literally true, and I don't think the Greeks thought it was literally true either. I'm not even sure that Aristophanes believed it. But the story, the idea that we are incomplete until we meet our romantic partner, is deeply embedded in our sense of ourselves, in the story that we tell ourselves about our lives. And in fact, I would say, it's a myth that is increasingly true in 21st century Australia. My friend, the Reverend Dr. Danny Truick, who's written her PhD on a theology of singleness, says that the pursuit of romantic love continues to hold captive our collective imagination. If you are to believe the movies, the novels, the box sets, the magazines and the celebrity commentary, then you're not complete until you've found your soulmate, the one who truly makes your soul whole. It's a truth universally acknowledged that a single person, thank you Jane Austen fans, cannot be truly fulfilled and happy until they have found Mr. or Ms. Wright. The popular philosopher Alain de Botton calls this the romantic faith and he writes this in his book, The Course of Love. For the romantic, it is only the briefest of steps from a glimpse of a stranger to the formulation of a majestic and substantial conclusion that he or she may constitute the comprehensive answer to the unspoken questions of existence. He argues that this is actually one of the consequences of the secularization of our age in moving away from some idea of God, a higher transcendent being, then we've projected that onto our, uh, this idea of the soulmate, onto other people. This has, he says, taken up the status of something close to the purpose of life. It is a God substitute. And so we feel, we resonate with that moment in the 1990s movie, Jerry Maguire, when Tom Cruise, would you believe it, gazes soulfully into Rene Zellweger's eyes and says, does anyone know? You can, no one at 8 o'clock knew. <laughs> they hadn't seen a movie that was popular 25 years ago. Anyway, you complete me. We resonate with that. But it hasn't always been this way. 
In fact, today, I think we believe more in the idea of the soulmate partnership than we did even a generation ago. Poets and philosophers have always praised romantic and sexual love. We know that. And as we've seen from the reading we heard from the Song of Songs, the Bible does too. But in our time, this praise has almost become a rhapsody, an exaltation, I would even say a form of worship. Marriage expert Eli Finkel argues that we hope, what we hope for in marriage has significantly changed over the generations. Before, he says, about 1850, in the countries we call the West, I guess, for most people, the primary function of marriage was survival. It was an arrangement of convenience. You married someone from within a very small set of people, and it was an economic arrangement that offered food, shelter, protection, and children. A little bit of affection, if you were lucky. But from 1850, marriage became what he calls companionate. It would ideally involve love, companionship and sexual fulfillment. But nothing much, more, nothing much more than that was necessarily expected. And this may indeed have been a great description of the marriages of your, your grandparents or even of your parents. But from about the mid-60s, the mid-1960s, something different again emerged. Marriage was now supposed to offer self-discovery, self-esteem and personal growth. It's supposed not just to be a convenient agreement, but to make us deeply happy. And Eli Finkel says, this is not companionate marriage now, it is what he calls self-expressive marriage. Self-expressive marriage. It's meant to fulfill, fulfill me. In his book, Modern Love, the uh, comedian Aziz Ansari puts it this way. It's a really interesting book. In a very short period of time, he says, the whole culture of finding love and a mate has radically changed a century ago, people would find a decent person who lived in their neighbourhood. Their families would meet and after they decided that neither party seemed like a murderer, the couple would get married and have a kid, all by the time they were 22. Today, people spend years of their lives on a quest to find the perfect person, a soulmate. Now, why has this happened? Partly... It's taken place, this change, because of the rise of a view of meaning and purpose in human life, which I call expressive individualism. We've become expressive individualists. Now, expressive individualism says that the point of my life is not to conform to roles and institutions, but to be the most authentic and fulfilled version of me that I can be. That's the point of my life. I, uh, it's not about what other people tell me I should be, but rather about what I decide from my inner self that I should be. So then a, a long-term relationship like marriage or a long-term partnership is not about survival or about companionship or about fitting in with society or taking part in an institution that's the bedrock of the social structure or performing my assigned role, but a part of my path to personal fulfilment and happiness. To this, we could also add that since the 1960s, Sex itself has become tied to self-expression, especially since the invention of the pill. Sex isn't now simply a bodily desire that's part of our uh, reproductive process. We now think of it as an expression of our authentic self. A single friend of mine uh, in her 40s went to the GP a couple of years ago, and the GP urged her to be immunised against sexually transmitted infections. He just would not believe her when she said, actually, I'm celibate. Eventually, she had to say to him, 
I live an alternate sexual lifestyle. And he believed her. <laughs> There's a couple of interesting effects of this change. One is that the age of getting married has, market, getting married has markedly increased. We don't simply settle for the boy or girl next door. What happens now is that, uh, and this has only happened in 20 or 30 years, the average age of marrying has gone from early 20s to 29 for women and 31 for men. And I would say that's true. We marry about 40 couples a year here, and I would say mostly they fit into that 29, 31 age bracket. You see, marriage is now not a beginning, the start of an adventure, but supposed to be the summit achievement, an end point to your quest for love. A wedding day uh, today, a wedding costs an average of, 40, of over $40,000. That's not a St. Mark's wedding, right? We don't charge $40,000, by the way. The total is $40,000. And this is because the assumption is that most of the building blocks of your life are in place already. You've established your career. You've been living together for a while. You've bought property. You've done all the travel. You've eaten all the smashed avocado. You've had all the hangovers you want to have, and now you're ready to settle down to a more boring existence. Another effect, so that's, that's the first effect, this later, of, later age of getting married. Another effect is that far few people are actually getting married. By some accounts, up to a quarter of people will now not get married or partner long term at all. Most people, interestingly, still say that they would like to be married, but they're just not happy to settle for Mr. or Ms just okay. Which is connected to the third effect, the rise of what I would call serial monogamy. The idea of romantic relationships uh, as an expression of myself means that when the relationship fails to achieve that, I want to be free to move on and continue with someone else and continue with the quest. Indeed, it's almost a moral imperative that I do. And you see this sometimes written up in the newspaper uh, relationship sections where people say, uh, my objective in life is to be, that's my prime objective, is my happiness and fulfilment. And if my relationship isn't doing that, then it, it's not just my preference, it's my moral, it's, it's actually right in keeping with how the universe is that I should do that. Since to be, so I'd move on, since to be happy is the goal. To put it another way, the dream of the Disney princess that she will meet Prince Charming and live happily ever after has turned into the angst of Taylor Swift, who sings, so it's going to be forever or it's going to go down in flames. You can tell me when it's over if the high was worth the pain. So, does the myth of the soulmate work? And is it true? Well, it certainly touches on a deep truth. Our romantic and erotic relationships are, for many of us, the places of our greatest joys and deepest satisfactions in life. The Bible contains one of the most beautiful love poems ever written, the Song of Songs. And if you want to go, go and read it, if you've never read it before, it's an extraordinarily beautiful piece of, uh, an exciting piece of poetry, and it fairly crackles with romance, but more than just romance, eroticism. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, is jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. If you think you've heard those words before, uh, they were read at 
Harry and Meghan's wedding. But read them anyway. Just this week, I met with a man who had been married for more than 60 years to his wife, who died about two years ago. His house is filled with pictures of them together, and he speaks lovingly uh, of their time together, lovingly and appreciatively of her, of the life they built, the three kids they had. Uh, He tells the story, he tells me every time, the story of how they met 60 years ago and of their adventures. And his grief, in fact, he he wanted to show me uh, the eulogy on the video uh, that he had there, a a video of the eulogy that he gave at her wedding, which was extremely moving. His grief now is a mark of the depth of what they were blessed with in life. Who can deny that? And speaking for myself, I I, I think I'm very blessed to be married uh, Catherine and I have our, uh, our anniversary, our 30th anniversary on the 10th of April. For me, life simply goes better shared with Catherine. Now, I know that there are people here who long to meet that person and that there are those here who are in, in grief, a grief that doesn't just heal, not something that you will get over because that person has been taken from them. That grief does feel like losing a part of yourself. People tell, it, tell me it feels like an amputation. Loneliness can feel like an acute pain, something you feel in your body, almost physically. But the soulmate takes this good truth, this truth, further, as a number of experts have realised. Celebrated marriage counsellor Esther Perel says, Today we turn to one person to provide what an entire village once did, a sense of grounding, meaning, and continuity. At the same time, we expect our committed relationships to be romantic, as well as emotionally and sexually fulfilling. Is it any wonder, she says, that so many relationships crumble under the weight of it all? She also says, I've never forgotten her saying this, she says, do you want to be right, or do you want to be married? That's a great quote. One writer tells the story of going to a wedding where the couple wrote their own vows. And their vows were beautiful and powerful. Indeed, so much so that four different couples later broke up because they felt that they just didn't have that kind of love. And that's the thing. The soulmate myth makes relationships more freighted and more fraught because of what it asks another person to be for us which is something only God can be. You're asking another human being to be transcendent, to be immortal, to be eternal and infinite. A relationship, a human relationship, can be extremely fulfilling, but it cannot ultimately fulfill you. And that's not its true purpose anyway. And the fact is that there may not be someone out there for you in any case. That's not a promise that we have in the Bible. And I wish we would stop saying it to each other. Oh, there is a one. You'll meet the one. Maybe you will. Maybe you won't. I don't think we have a promise from the Bible at all that that's the case. Now, ironically, the soul myth, the soulmate myth makes it harder for us to get married and to stay married. And yet at the same time, it makes us view singles as by definition incomplete and unfulfilled When we see ourselves as needing another person to be more truly ourselves, we may choose our partners unwisely on the basis of the supposed magic of our immediate connection. 
If we view sex not simply as a desire, but as an existential necessity, we will be sexually frustrated even when we are partnered. A friend of mine who is a counsellor tells me that her practice is filled with single people who wish they were married and married people who wish they were single. Clearly, we've got something wrong. At the centre of the soulmate myth, you see, is an inherent contradiction which makes it implode. And it's this, that it sees the very purpose of the relationship as my self-fulfilment. The love we're seeking to express is really self-love. We're in love as a culture with the idea of love. But facing the reality of giving that love to another person, which means arguing about how to stack the dishwasher, is a letdown. But true love is about another person. True love is not about me and my fulfilment, but about the other person and their good. As that extraordinary passage that the Apostle Paul wrote, that is still being read at weddings today from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It, love is not selfish. It does not boast. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love may indeed bring us joy and fulfilment, but it may also bring us pain and disappointment. But love endures all things. It is kind and patient for the sake of the beloved, because it has most joy in the good of the other person. It is most delighted when it sees the other person flourishing. Its object, if there is any joy in love, any fulfillment, any meaning, it is in the flourishing of the other person. And that's the nature of God's infinite and self-giving love. The Bible is a romance story telling the story of the loving God, the God who is love, who is seeking to woo us despite everything we human beings have become, despite our self-vandalism, despite the way we treat one another. His love is patient and long-suffering. It is self-giving and sacrificial. And it's in sending his son to die for our sins that we see his love most beautifully and wonderfully expressed. How deep we sing the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all telling that he should send his only son for us. We hear from John's Gospel. For God so loved the world. And what is the expression of his love? That he gave his only son. John in his letter says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loves us. And do you remember how it goes from there? Sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is the shape of divine love. Patient, costly, sacrificial for the sake of the other. And in that story is something far beyond the soulmate myth. What it tells us is that we can know an infinite and eternal love that is beyond what, whatever any human being could be for us. We have, by the blood of Jesus, a love that never fails. We can wake up every morning in the confident knowledge that whether we are married happily or unhappily, divorced, Single, 
widowed, whatever the state of our human relationships, we are loved by the one who made us with a love that burns, a love that is stronger than the grave, an eternal and living love. We are precious to him, a guarantee that is written in the blood of Christ. We use that language, the word cherish in the wedding service. It's a great, it's a great word, cherish. It means treasure. And it is God who shows us what it is to cherish a person, to really love in his love expressed in the cross of Jesus Christ. And this helps us to put our earthly relationships in right perspective. It gives us a model for our earthly relationships. It teaches us what love is. But it also shows us, uh, it also puts our, our earthly relationships in their right place. God has, in his great grace, given us the gift of one another. He has made human beings for relationships. Human beings are not designed for isolation. It's one of the great tragedies, the looming tragedies of our, and hidden tragedies of our current society. The growing epidemic of loneliness particularly, I might say, amongst the 18 to 24 age bracket who say that they are, who record the most lonely outcomes of any age bracket. We tend not to see that. Yet we are a more and more isolated and lonely society. Yet God made us for relationships. We are more like the bees than we are like the tigers in that way. But marriage is only one of the many kind of relationships that he gives us in which to find comfort, trust, intimacy and joy. I think the soulmate myth, by putting all the weight on, on that one relation, that special relationship, dr draws our attention away from the other relationships which we need to nurture, that we, we need to treasure. By asking the one relationship to meet all our needs, we fail to treasure our friendships, our siblings, and our parents and children, and even, dare I say it, our work colleagues. It's not an accident that God has called us when we become Christians, when he calls us into salvation, he calls us into a family, into his church, where we are to live out our salvation by expressing our love for one another, practicing our discipleship, not as expressive individuals, but as a community of saved sinners. Our salvation is fundamentally, absolutely, inextricably relational. And both Jesus and Paul teach that while marriage is good, so is singleness. They are both complete. In the passage we heard from Matthew's Gospel, uh, Jesus teaches us that marriage is not an eternal state, but something for this earthly life. It is a finite relationship. It's a finite state, recognising our finitude and mortality. Which doesn't mean that we won't see or be with our spouses in heaven, I hasten to add but that our relationships there will have a fundamentally different purpose and a fundamentally different nature. We don't promise in the marriage service to be married forever. We don't promise eternal marriage, but only till death do us part, or in the more modest language of today's service, so long as we both shall live. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, great chapter on marriage, he says that he wishes more Christians could remain single. That's an astonishing passage of scripture. One of those ones that you need to actually go and look at to see that it's actually there. Given the way sometimes I think Christians have echoed the outside culture by making an idol of marriage, by assuming that marriage is what the destiny is for every human being. Now Paul says, I wish 
that more of you would remain single as I am. He's quite pragmatic about it too. He says, singleness gives you freedoms that marriage doesn't. Marriage gives you responsibilities and duties, burdens that singleness doesn't. And he says that he is single himself. This is not from a horror of sex, mind you, some people have assumed, but that singleness might be your right, the best state for you to live out your discipleship of Christ. Neither sex nor marriage, he says, are essential to a complete human life. Otherwise, we would be embarrassed about Paul, let alone Jesus, the emblematic, complete human being, and yet single. So what then? Well, if we leave behind the soulmate myth, then where does this leave us? Well, if you're single or divorced or widowed, then you can know that while it can be good to have a romantic partner, it does not make you an incomplete person to be single. We should resist telling singles or suggesting to those who are not married that, that, that it will complete them if they do. Or assuming that single people must be in want of a wife or a husband. But also we should assume that finding a mate won't necessarily make you happy. Uh, sometimes we, uh, we think that our unhappiness, the ache in us, will be resolved by meeting that special person when in fact Actually, we just bring that unhappiness into the relationship itself. We fail to see that there are people who are partnered who are still dealing with unhappiness, with the same issues that they brought into their relationship. But it's not the purpose of love to make us happy in any case. It's worth also remembering that there are many other relationships and friendships that God gives to us and nurturing those. Marriage is unique as a sexual relationship, but it has its unique burdens as well. We as a community should honour singleness and make it easy for people who are not partnered to feel that they belong. One of the things singles tell me is that uh, when it comes to having people over, for instance, uh, it just, you know, we, we see eight places at our dinner table and we invite three other couples. Well, it'd be nice. Not to think in those even terms. Not to think that our social lives just belong to those who are couples. Uh, likewise, people who've had their relationship break down or have lost a partner suddenly find themselves not invited anymore, cut out of the social loop. I really hope that that's not the case here at St Mark's. We have a chance to be countercultural in that respect, to be a great place for those who are not partnered. I know it can be easy for a church community to be so focused on couples and kids that the unpartnered are reminded all too often that they are different. We've chosen not to call our family services that anymore. We don't want to, I mean, family, we use that word family to talk about the church family. We don't want to indicate that family means people with kids. What we mean by family, at all, we call it now an all-ages service, because we want to be inclusive of people at what, in whatever family situation or none, whatever relationship status they're in or none. In sharing hospitality with each other, let me challenge us to actively include the single, the divorced and the widowed people as well as those who are in couples. But if you are married or in a long-term partnership, let's not forget that marriage is hard work. It takes real effort to maintain a long-term relationship. What might help is if you remember 
that the other person is not supposed to be your soulmate responsible for your happiness. That's not why they've been given to you. Your marriage might be blissfully happy, I pray that it is, in which case, praise God. But I know for many of us, marriage is tough. I know for many of us, it's just too easy to look on social media at other people, their blissful pictures of of their time with their spouse. Of course, they don't. No one ever puts on uh, uh, social media, had an argument with my wife yesterday. Uh, no one ever puts that. What we see is people being happy, right? We get an artificial sense that everybody else is having a good time except us. I know this is true for many of us that marriage is tough. It can be difficult to see what the rewards are. Can I encourage you not to let your marriage drift towards coldness or separation? A successful marriage may not always be happy. The promise of a Christian marriage is not to fulfill and complete the other person or to have them fulfill and complete you, but to stay present with one another through the thicks and thins of life, to experience and to mirror the love of God, to hang on through the better and worses, the riches and the poorers, the sickness and the healths, to love as God loves, patiently and sacrificially. It may not look like a fairy tale, but then it was never supposed to look like a fairy tale. It was meant to for something far better than that. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.